We'll call this guy Chris. He had a job as a middleman, but a kind of odd sort of middleman. We basically are the middleman between the deaf and someone who can hear. Chris worked for a company that helped deaf people communicate over the telephone. To make a call, a deaf person would contact Chris. He would get the hearing person on the line. The deaf person would type what it is they wanted to say. Chris would read this to the hearing person and then type their responses back to the deaf person. Most of the conversations were what you'd expect. People calling their families, talking about what they have for dinner, people calling their banks. And then again, I mean, because I I usually work nights, some of the calls were very intimate phone conversations between people breaking up, people just falling in love for the first time, people telling them that members of their family had died, phone sex, things no one would ever want you to hear, really. One thing that happened more often than you'd think, especially when parents were talking to their kids, was that they would get into an argument, and then one of them would try to drag Chris into the argument, on their side of it. And I wasn't allowed to say anything, so I would just say, the CA, we were called communication assistance, uh, does not have that information. That was the phrase, the blanket phrase that they let me use. It's so computer-like. Well, that was the paradigm they wanted us to follow. They wanted us to be computers, basically. Information machines. I I remember a daughter had been... uh, It was a deaf daughter, and she had been out um, sleeping around and doing a lot of drugs, evidently. And the mother was just trying to... uh, tell her that she needed to stop doing all these things and saying you may feel like you're young and you can just do what you want and since you're deaf you feel you have an excuse to do all these things and she started talking to me and she said you don't do drugs do you (laughs) and I said the CA does not have that information and then she said well can't you just type to her and tell her that you you think she's hurting herself as well. Now, when she's saying this to you, do you have to type that in so the daughter knows that she's saying it to you? Yeah, you do. You have to type everything that she's saying. The daughter really disliked that. The daughter would start talking to me and say, don't let her talk to you. And like, she would start trying to tell me just how terrible the mother had been to her growing up. The mother actually said at this point, this is really embarrassing, and tried to pretend like I wasn't there the rest of the time. It's hard to be the middleman. Pizza delivery places always hung up on Chris and the other operators. Phone sex operators and drug dealers were way more service-oriented when it came to the deaf. And then there were the people who liked to mess with the middleman. Like two African-American guys one day started using all sorts of words and phrases just because it would be funny to hear the white operator say them. They were talking in really heavy street slang. One person was intent on having me use the N-word over and over, and it was very uncomfortable. But the two people using it on the phone obviously didn't care. They just wanted to uh, have me do it. And they were even joking about me doing it. They would just be laughing. I mean, a lot, a lot of people find a lot of amusement out of playing with the communication assistants. I found it kind of funny after a while. I mean, all of my friends who I went through the training for this were uh, young black women, and they thought I was kind of 
really straight, and they they used to perk their ears up immediately as soon as they heard me get into like any sort of <laughs> uh, ghetto speak or whatnot. <laughs> because I mean, I, I I can't do it. I didn't like it, but I wasn't gonna read in a completely like white bread tone of voice either. Like I didn't want to do that. <laughs> it was humiliating and funny at the same time. Given another example of times it was hard just to be an information machine. A man actually had just fallen off a ladder in his garage and he had gone deaf. And so he was calling up all his friends and, and telling them what had happened to him. And so these people were completely unfamiliar with service. So I had to explain the service. They still didn't understand it. And then he had to tell them, that he, explain what the service was, why he was using it, and how he had just gone deaf. And it was very obvious. I remember one man he had called. They were not that close. And the man obviously did not know how to react. He was, he was having a really hard time. He just kept saying, I'm sorry, over and over. And it was really excessive. And it was just really hard to keep telling all the, knowing that you're going to have to tell six or seven people after this, this man has gone deaf. And, and at the end of that, like, so now you, you as a person, you've been through this experience with him of, of now the two of you have told, you know, a half dozen people that he's gone deaf. Like, it must be hard that, that after you get off the phone with the last person that you and he don't talk about what just happened. R right. Sometimes people will will say because there is a 30 second window of time where I'm still on the line with him and I remember he typed thank you so much I'm sure that must have been very hard for you as well as me hmm. so I mean there is a brief moment of time it's hard to be the middleman hard to keep your feelings out of it. It's hard to stay neutral. People want you to get involved and they want you to get out of it. You can't win for losing. And I say this as a middle child. And then there's that whole eliminate the middleman thing. Eliminate the middleman. If you Google the phrase eliminate the middleman, you get 3,800 websites promising to eliminate middlemen of every kind for you. Car dealers, realtors, stockbrokers, furniture stores, stamp sales, plus one site that has figured out a way to bypass the lousy crop of presidential candidates who are offered every four years. Eliminate the middleman, it promises. Satan for president in 2004. Welcome to WBEZ Chicago. It's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. Today on our program, middleman. We will not eliminate him. We will not pass the savings on to you. No, no, no. For once, a defense of the beleaguered middleman in three acts, including a simple explanation of how you, yes, you, could have gotten rich off Michael Jordan using the simple rules of market economics and a good down parka. Stay with us. Act one, show me the Monet. You know, you can't do a story about middlemen without a story about business and all the people who make the livings, buying low and selling high, how they are sort of looking out for their customers and sort of looking out for the product and their suppliers and mainly looking out for themselves. And this story begins... As so many radio stories seem to these days, with a classifieds ad. 
Triple-A tickets, all events, seven days, concerts, sports, theater, Lincoln Park. And then it's got the address and the phone number. Uh, for, a few, for a lot of years, I worked here, and if someone had called this ad, called in the phone number here, I probably would have been the one to answer the phone. When people call this number, you know, I don't know what kind of place they're imagining, maybe like a fancy little office downtown, but we were actually in the back of a video store um, in this little uh, dark office with a ceiling fan going real slowly counterclockwise kind of squeaking you know um one beam of light coming through the tall window up top and dust kind of streaming around the room and uh, dogs barking out back i remember for a while there was not many movies on the shelves there was like buster that movie that phil collins made (laughs) and like no one would ever rent those How long did you work there? On and off from 96 to about 2001. Over the course of those few years, I got to know the ticket world inside and out, you know? I met people with names like 35th Street Eddie, Southside Frank, Fast Willie, Richie the Head. There was a guy named Elbow who had sort of a big elbow. A lot of guys got nicknames after, you know, whatever event that they specialized in. Monet Joe. Uh, one one time there was a Monet exhibit at the Art Institute. So people come in from out of town and they want to go to the exhibit. The only way they can go is if they have these, these VIP staff passes. And Monet somehow managed to have a few hundred of them. All the ticket brokers, all the ticket guys, all the hotel concierges, everyone was calling Monet. And uh, from then on, he's just been called Monet. So you came back to town and sort of to, to look up some of the people that you used to work with, right? Yeah, right. Uh-huh. Yeah. And um, who, so who did you talk to first? First I looked up uh, an old ticket friend named Liz, and we started talking about some of our old clients. You spend so much time on the phone talking to the worst people. They're either mean or they're rude. Ugh. And you're always putting people on hold. Like, let me get my supervisor. Let me talk to my supervisor. And you're like, I'm not doing shit for this guy. You sit on hold. He'll hang up. He'll hang up. We we call it the stew pot. When you when you let someone just on hold, you just we say let them stew for a little while, and and usually if if they're like kind of going hemming and hawing, going back and forth, you let them stew for a few five like five minutes, mm-hmm. maybe you know maybe come on once and be like, hang in there, man, hang in there, be right back with you. Let them stew another five minutes. Then after ten, they're ready to talk. They're ready to deal. Yeah, definitely. We had the, we'd put them transform to weird like did this line that would ring and ring. And ring, you're like, don't pick up line four. Everybody knows line four is the line. Don't pick it up. Just put like a towel over it. Because we always had the same thing. We had different lines that meant different things, you know. Like one, you had a couple lines you had to answer different things. Like one line you had to answer hello. Like anytime we try to get tickets through like legitimate means, like through like like group sales oh, or anything like that. Like you, you would put the home, uh, like a phone number so you, it said on all the phones, hello. There was a little taped on piece of paper that said hello on it to remind you to like, answer it, hello. This was the phone line that was supposed to simulate an, an actual sort of a home, someone's residence. You're just supposed to pick it up and say, hello? And, you know, this was when we ordered group sale tickets from the Cubs. So, you know, we'd, we'd put in orders for 
tons of group sales and you know we if they knew we were a ticket broker you know they wouldn't be having it we wouldn't we wouldn't get the tickets so we'd pick you know different names of organizations and they actually would check though like well no they would just they would just call you and they'd be like you know what's the name of your organization or i mean they figure and sometimes you'd say oh well it's it's grandpa louis 70th birthday so we're bringing 40 people to that game or you know uh it's the little league uh hockey team that i coach we're having a special summer party and we need uh 120 tickets we got tykes coming from all over up and down the state they're all stars you should see some of these kids they're really fine hockey players There was another phone line that if it rang, you were just supposed to pick the phone line up and not say anything at all. Just just pick it, pick it up and put it to your ear and be silent. If they had, that, that was uh, a guy, Lobster, who, who, owned, who owned the business. That, that was kind of uh, one of his special lines. And uh, it was important that you just didn't say anything. You couldn't even, you know, they didn't, you weren't supposed to let them hear your voice even. So just pick it up and be silent. Actually, I never figured out what that one was for. There's a guy named Leo, who was one of my best friends of all the ticket guys. And uh, a couple of days ago, I was in Ann Arbor at a, at a Michigan football game, and Leo was out there buying and selling. I saw a couple of the old guys I knew, so they'd come in from all over, and uh, Leo was out there. So, yeah, so I put this mic on his uh, on his oh, collar, you know, attached the battery pack to his butt, and uh, and just you know listen to him walk around. Anybody got one extra ticket? Anybody got one extra? What is this called actually? What he's doing now? Is, it, is there a term for yeah, what he's doing? Yeah, he's walking the walk. Extra ticket? The area by the by the stadium or or by the by the concert hall is called the walk, and then you're you're walking the walk. You, you're saying who needs two. So he's just showed up here without any tickets. Right. He's trying to buy some tickets, so then he can turn them around, and uh, you know, we, we say flip them, so he can flip them for some dough, you know, flip them for a profit. You got one extra? Huh? How much How much you want 20. for? 20? Worth um, 60. Worth 60? Yeah. How about 15? Uh, 20. 20? Yeah. 18? $29 ticket. Okay. Um, sure, you can't do 15? I'll do 18. That's 18? It. All right. There you go. Got it. Thanks. Okay, so I actually timed this. From the moment right. he um, says, thank you, man, to the moment he runs into another person right. is exactly a minute and 20 seconds. You guys need tickets? Yeah. I got one. It's up for 100. It's up for 100? Yeah, uh, midfield. We, we Wait a minute. <laughs> he just tried to sell it for 100 bucks? You, you get what you can, you know. You, you might as well start high. Maybe, you never know. Maybe the guy's going to pull out a, 100 bucks and say, here. You know, it can't hurt to start at 100 and come down. <laughs> you can't go up. You can't say, you know, 30 bucks. And if the guy says only 30, be oh, no, 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 50. Oh, no, you know, uh-huh. start as high, you know, you can always come down. Did you have other techniques that you used, like, when you were doing this? Um, there's a whole psychology to, you know, what you do to sell someone tickets, you know? Like when I was on the street outside of the United Center, say, at a Bulls game, I'd present myself differently to different people, depending what I thought they wanted out of this ticket-buying transaction. Some guys would you know, be kind of nervous, and I'd see them kind of walking up and all the hustlers going up to them, trying to sell them tickets, and they'd look all wary, and you know, they'd have a couple kids with them. And uh, so then I'd go up to them, and, and I'd just be like, uh, Sir, 
uh, you know, my my uncle couldn't come to the game tonight, but uh, you know, I do have this extra ticket. You know, if if you guys want to come, they're great seats. I sit in them every game with my uncle, and and uh, you know, I made him more feel comfortable buying tickets for me. And you know, and then sometimes there was guys who, you know, they'd come with a few friends, and you know, they kind of wanted to show off that they were, you know, they they could work with our. Uh, underworld element you know that they, they knew how to deal with scalpers they'd be like i'll, I'll take care they say to their friends you know you see them i'll be right back and they'd come up to me and and then i'd you know then i'd be the hardened street hustler and i'd be you know looking around constantly you know i'd be saying come on man the, the heat's tight out here tonight you know work with me work with me you know what, what are you paying what are you paying what do you need you know uh just trying to you know make them feel like they were really wheeling and dealing Did you always win? Did the, did the customer ever have a chance? I mean, it's like, you, really, out of every transaction, both people win. I mean, if they, could, if they paid you it, then they were able, they could afford it, you know? So many people would, would buy tickets from me at a, you know, at just a, what I imagined to be like an, you know, I, I was myself was like, this price is ridiculous. And yet they would be so happy. They would be glowing, you know, and they were so appreciative and thankful to me, you know, for for getting them into the game, you know. But I, I did make it a rule, sometimes a point of pride, to not let them go in with any, you know, to see how much money they had in their wallet. And, and that was, and I was going to take all of it. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to, you know, they could, they didn't need popcorn in the game. They didn't need a beer. Being a ticket broker is is different than being in other businesses where you you know if you if you run a bar and you run out of Bud Light you know you call up and have them pull that truck right up uh, back in the loading dock and you know wheel about 20 cases off you know but when you, when you want to get tickets it's not that simple there's no easy way to do it so ticket brokers you know have to rely on just a whole network of shadowy associates bring the tickets into him. There's a guy named Moose who has a whole a bike gang. And uh, every every year when Cubs games would go on sale, you know, when the Cubs, at the Cubs on sale, you're only allowed to buy eight tickets for up to eight games. So 64 tickets total. He would get about 15 of his biker friends. He would just keep them up all night on Friday night, drinking, you know, merrymaking, singing, whatever it would take. So when the when the, when the tickets went on sale, he'd have, then have 15 guys who were waiting there. You know, hopefully they weren't passed out. They were they were waiting there to buy 64 tickets each. When he brings them into the ticket broker, the broker will pay him 10 bucks over the face value for each ticket. At the Bulls on sales, they started doing this lottery system. You know, they they didn't want people to just be camping out two weeks beforehand because they knew that these tickets were going to be worth so much. So a couple of enterprising ticket brokers started rounding up homeless guys around Chicago. They actually would get rent a school bus. And they would drive around Chicago just pulling people into the bus, you know, promising them 10 or 20 bucks if they'd come hang out for the morning. You know, sometimes they'd even pull up in front of the homeless shelter right down there on, uh, on South Wabash, you know, or South State, and just, you know, toot the horn, and all the guys would come filing out and fill up the bus, and they'd drive them down to the United Center box office window. When the tickets went on sale, you'd have, out of the first 60 people in line, there'd be 50 homeless guys waiting to buy these like hundred dollar tickets and the brokers would just you know give them a few hundred bucks each to buy the tickets they they wanted 
every once in a while, tickets would be released into the system. Suddenly, they would become available. What just a, a game that had been sold out? Suddenly, there's six tickets that are available, and maybe it's a season ticket holder who's canceled and said, "I can't come to this game," and or you know, David Stern, the NBA commissioner, he actually has four front row seats to every game in the NBA every night. And there's no way that he can go to every game every night. In fact, a lot of nights he doesn't go to any game. So sometime the day of the game, they'll release those seats, and those four beautiful seats will suddenly become available into the system. So whoever's the first person to phone in, go to a window, or punch in online at that precise second is going to be the one that gets them. So, you know, like Monet, Joe, Monet Joe, what he would do is uh, all kind of all night he would just kind of hang out at his computer, just keep pecking, pecking, pecking away, you know, with Grateful Dead playing and smoking a J and just pecking away, pecking away. Usually it says, sorry, you know, your selection is not available. He would peck again, one ticket. He might peck thousands of times. But then all of a sudden your screen lights up and it gives you that section and row number and says, you know, would you like to continue and finish this purchase? And you know, you just made, you can buy that ticket for face value which is about as low as you can buy a ticket, and sell it for 10 times ahead sometimes, you know. During the time that you worked, during those five years that you worked as a scalper, how, how was the money? It, it, was pretty, it was pretty fat. It was sick. It was humongous. I mean, I had, you know, a suitcase of money. <laughs> You had a little suitcase of money. Um, yeah, it was actually so much money that that I didn't want to deposit it at one time in a bank. I didn't want to freak out the the, ma- the bank manager or anything like that. So I would I would put a little bit in one bank, a little bit in another bank, and then there was a third bank where I had a safety deposit box, and I would just stuff the cash into the safety deposit box. You know, the, the Bulls days with Michael Jordan were really the golden age of tickets in Chicago. You know, there's always there's always peaks and valleys, you know, and you know, I'm sure Yankee tickets are pretty nice now, Laker tickets are all right. But I mean it, it was a rare it, it wasn't just ha- one sports team having a nice run. It it really became something that, you know, it became the focus of the entire world, you know? You'd meet people from Sweden and Japan and Korea and England and Germany and you you were like a celebrity to them you know you you had what everybody else in the world wanted you know you had a stack of tickets to a Chicago Bulls game and people would do anything for them and they would pay any price you know we 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 felt like we were part of something bigger than us we felt like we were part of this you know historical moment The day Michael Jordan retired in 1998 in June, that's the same day I retired. Michael Jordan probably sits around with his cousins and friends and talks about, you know, his great shots that he made, his game-winning dunks. You know, some of the ticket people sit around and talk about the great sales that they made for <laughs> for Bulls games. Like, I talked to my friend John, and he's got a story about it. An old lady was walking down the street. She passed all the hustlers up, and nobody, you know, had thought to ask her. But 
I was walking down the street, and I just said, do anybody have any extra tickets? And she said, you need tickets? I said, yeah. And she said, yeah, I got a couple of extra tickets. Section 111, row 15. These was the best tickets. These was like in center court, 15 rows from the floor. She sold me the tickets at $85 each, which at that time was face value tickets. I, in turn, didn't even get a chance to walk 10 feet away after I bought the tickets. A whole gang of people got around <laughs> me, uh, and everybody is bidding on it. When we got finished bidding with those tickets, those tickets sold at $1,200 cash a ticket. I was so happy, and the guy that bought them was a Chinese man. Him and his wife went. They thought I was God, you know, I mean, because they had, like, the best seats. And I stuffed the money in my pocket and skipped on down the street. <laughs> you know, but that was, that was the most memorable day. You know, this is what a hustler dream of, of a deal like that. Because you can never, you know, you hardly ever find a deal like that. Especially, you can hardly ever find tickets on a Jordan day. Even if you do find a ticket like that, you're going to pay a few hundred dollars for it. And then you're going to run around and try to sell it for big money. But to get a deal like that, you know, I mean, it just stays with you. You know, there's nothing to say about a deal like that. Bought cheap, sold high. What more can I say? <laughs> yeah, well, it's just not like it used to be during the Jordan era. You know, what can I say? It's terrible. <laughs> it is. It's bad. <laughs> uh, how bad is it? Yeah, I'll show you. One day I was at the White Sox trying to sell tickets, right? And I had this guy that was going to buy a couple of tickets from me. And I wasn't charging him. It was a $27 ticket. I was going to give it to him for like 20 bucks a piece. And a fan walked up and just gave him two tickets. <laughs> That's how bad it was. And the guy said, thanks for talking to me, and went into the ballpark. It's a, it's a cold and dark and kind of rainy, miserable February day. Every day in the ticket world now, you know? Where instead of just, the, you know, the gleaming bright sun of, 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 the, of the Bulls era, you know? And it used to be... Used to be, this page had about 30, 40 ads every day in here. Now there's what one, two, three, four, five, six. So a lot of people are out of the game that that wants to run it. You know, it was it wasn't just me that retired. Our ticket scalper talked with this American Life producer, Alex Bloomberg. up 60,000 Memphis fans can't be wrong about you can they in a minute from Public Radio International and Chicago Public Radio when our program continues 
is American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Each week in our program, of course, we choose some theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, Middleman, in which we examine what it means to be the monkey in the middle. We have arrived at Act 2 of our program. Act 2, Stuck Inside of Memphis. A while back, there was a fire in Beth Landau's apartment building in New York. And when the firemen from around the corner were responding to the call, she and her mom, who was visiting, got to talking with one of them, a guy named Sal Princiato. Sal was a huge Elvis fan. He looks a bit like Elvis. And as fate had it, Beth's mom went to high school in Memphis with Elvis. So there was a lot to talk about. Okay, time passes. After September 11th, Beth checks at the firehouse around the corner to see if Sal is okay. This is one of the units that lost a lot of guys. And it turns out that he survived. He's depressed. Like a lot of firefighters, he developed asthma from digging in the dust and the rubble in the weeks after September 11th. But he is alive. She starts dropping by with food for the guys, hanging out. And wanting to do something nice for Sal, she organizes a trip to Memphis for him to see Graceland. Other firemen from the house get interested in going. And in the end, in May of 2002... 18 of them went as guests of the Memphis Fire Department and many other sponsors, with stops at Al Green's church, all the varied requisite Elvis sites, and an appearance before 60,000 people at the Sunset Symphony on the banks of the Mississippi. And Sal found that for the people of Memphis who they met, he and the other guys were a very particular kind of middleman, a very unusual kind of middleman. When we arrived into Memphis, as soon as they find out who you are, you know, you're a rock star. <laughs> and now for what y'all have all been waiting for. We're here to meet the heroes from New York City. These guys are from Engine House 33, Ladder Company 9, which I think is about a mile from the World Trade Center. These were some of the first guys on the scene, and they lost 10 men out of their 40-man crew. So these are the real heroes of New York City. We represent good, you know. Sal, I'd like for Sal Elvis Princiata to come up. Everybody wishes they could have been there, I think, in one way, for one hour, for one minute. So um, we connect them to that one minute. It's unnerving. <clears throat> you know, a lot of guys feel the same way. It's very unnerving to be applauded. I just can't dig it. I appreciate it, but uh, it's unnerving. Like embarrassing. I mean, we represent, we're FDNY, and that's what they see. They don't see names. Not me, not Pete, not Joe, not anybody. They see what we do. We see, and we know, that we pretty much didn't do anything. I think they feel sorry for us because we lost the battle. I think they almost pity us. I, they definitely do pity us. He's a real hero. That's pity out there. That's pity treatment. Oh, are y'all friends of those people that died in the little church? Mm-hmm. Uh, welcome to Sun Studios, the birthplace of rock and roll. And if you have any questions, hold them until the end of the tour. And if you have any pages or cell phones, to turn those off now because we are entering the year 1950. The Sun Records was, was was great. The birth of rock and roll, that was a good place to be. Uh, that was, that, that, that's one part that sticks out in my head a lot. Um, everybody that comes off the tour, I'm going to give you all one of our short sleeve t-shirts over here. Your no choice. way! Okay. They're getting a short sleeve t-shirt? Black, white, uh, burgundy, the blue, also in black, and all different style t-shirts. Yep. Perfect. Just pick your side, my friend.
So to take gifts from people, how do I feel? Uh, you know, people want to pacify and want to do what they can. And so I present a pair of gold and cloisonnate cufflinks with the city seal. <laughs> but, you know, it's hard to conceive. You're getting, you're getting gifts while your friends are dead. You know, that's all. You know, how does that equate? What's the purpose? These are real heroes. These guys right, are from, from New York. Nice to meet you. World Trade Center. What's up, guy? How are you? Yeah. I've seen a cartoon in the newspaper of Spider-Man, Batman, and Superman asking for a firefighter's autograph, you know, and that's that's just too much to be put on any average Joe's back because that's really what we are. And these great guys are here for three days. Let's give them a standing Memphis ovation. The symphony was pretty cool. I don't really like speaking in public, but we were there for the uh, the closing ceremonies of Memphis in May. Or was it May in Memphis? I can't remember. Yeah. A lot of people get emotional if you haven't, if you, you know. Maybe they see the pain in our eyes. If anybody was ever a soldier, you could tell they see, they see the look in the eyes. So they feel for us, and then they also, you know, it's their own grief. I, I would think that they were letting out. They can't say enough, you know, so they repeat themselves, <laughs> which is fine. I like to just shake your hand, but hey, I did a hell of a job. You guys, have and been I would have stuck it up. You know, that's all I can say. Is I'm thank proud. You. We're really proud of you. Uh, you guys have put us up and made us feel right at home here. Very hey, nice of you. We're just, uh, we're just proud of you. That's all thank I can you. say. That's Thanks all I can lot. say. Thank you, sir. Thank you. All right. That's all I can tell you is we're proud of you. Thank you. Guys, y'all did a hell of a job. Hey, we're, proud of, we're proud of you. That's all I can say. We're, we're really proud of you. Y'all did a hell of a job. And that's all I can say, bud. We're his connection. You know, we're his connection to what went down. And that's, and that's it. You know, we connect him to what went down. We give him a vehicle to, you know, feel it. Whereas for well, you, well, exactly. You know, is that that's for us. We're too connected. Yeah. No sh. <laughs> Very much too connected. There was this one day we played a softball game against Memphis Fire Department. Holy shit. All right, who's dying? Who's up? Hey, you're all right? Yeah. Where's the line? I'm going to go get the bottle. Sound pyrotechnic. Pile the bottle. Something. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I was having a hard time. You know, I dug there a lot of days. That's why my health is so bad. But I was having a real hard time. You know, until I got warmed Five up. <laughs> seven, they got seven. What do we got, four? If we had our team, if we had our A team, we would have definitely beat them. Like we, if we, Mike and Dave, who, who, who killed in 9-11, they were great outfielders if they were there. It's a different game. If uh, Bap, uh, Gerard Baptiste, he's one of, you know, that's our uh, three outfielders. If we had those guys, they were, we would have we picked them apart. We lost a lot of guys from the team. In fact, a recent guy, Gary Guidel, who just took his own life, was on the team. 
And he was a good guy, Gary. So that, I think that's another reason why guys are feeling a little bit uh, vulnerable at this point, because, you know, Gary was a regular Joe. He he didn't show any signs of hurting any more than any one of us. So that stirred up a lot of fright and a lot of, in myself, I can speak for myself, but I'm sure I can speak for others. Thank you. And that um, what happened to Gary is everybody's biggest fear right now to take their own life. You make us very proud. Thank you. We should be there. Guys, this girl wants uh, you guys to sign a paper, right? You got it. Sign it. Sal Princiata, his story was produced with Beth Landau, David Van Taylor, and Ali Pomeroy at Lumiere Productions in New York. It's a lonely man who wanders all around. It's a lonely man who roams from Searching, always searching for something he can't find. Act three, what it takes to tromp through the desert. So Moses was this great leader who brought the Israelites out of Egypt. One of the things the Bible says about him is that he was not much of a talker. Whenever he had to give a big speech or tell Pharaoh to let his people go, he would bring along his brother Aaron to do the talking for him. This is the story of somebody who's something like that. Al Drzinski is the middleman who is leading hundreds of people who live in New York City to the promised land of Schenectady, New York. And as he would tell you himself, what makes him good at his job is he is just a normal guy. No flashy speeches. You aren't dazzled by charisma when you meet him. But you trust him. Enough people trust him that he is accomplishing a very unlikely mission. Most of the people who he's convinced to move from the Bronx and Queens are people who immigrated there from the South American country of Guyana. These are people whose ancestors mostly came from India and Africa, moving to an old Rust Belt town of white ethnics. Our producer, Wendy Dorr, went to watch him work. Mayor Jerzynski is the sort of politician who's great at talking with old ladies or small businessmen, or really with anybody for about a minute and a half. But after that, after his opening lines, he goes into this patter. If you hang around him for more than a few hours, you hear the same lines over and over. There are awkward jokes. But he's making such an effort that you kind of forgive him anything. Here he is showing a busload of Guyanese New Yorkers around Schenectady. But you know, there, there's people, Guyanese people, that have come here and they said, now oh, they said, I've been to Schenectady, it's a little too slow for me. I like the fast pace of New York City. So it, that's understandable. And, and I like to tell people that come up here on the bus that if you like traffic jams, you, know, you, you should stay in New York City. That was a joke. You know, my jokes are getting pretty old. <laughs> I know one thing. Whenever I run out of things to say when I'm talking to Guyanese people, all, all I got to do is mention cricket. And then everybody starts talking. He looks around the bus. Nobody starts talking. In 1995, when he first ran for mayor, Schenectady was going through the same kinds of pains as lots of Rust Belt cities. 
The biggest employer, General Electric, had downsized from 40,000 employees to just a few thousand. Tens of thousands of people had moved away or were forced to retire. For a while, Al Jerzynski had this idea to lure Hasidic Jews to Schenectady. He wanted to repopulate certain problem neighborhoods with a group that was self-reliant, family-oriented, and tightly knit. That idea went nowhere. But then last year, some Guyanese people came to him for help getting an abandoned church for religious services. Well, we talked, and I talked about public assistance, and we had had quite a problem with a lot of people coming up from New York City that were not coming up here to work, but were getting on public assistance that were doing, a lot of them were doing things that we didn't want them to do, namely get involved in the drug trade. And, uh, and they made it very clear right up front within probably the first five or ten minutes that I met with them that that they don't believe in public assistance unless it's absolutely necessary, but it's, it's against their culture, you know, to, uh, to get on public assistance. And I heard that. I was, I was extremely impressed by that. It was just so wonderful and so refreshing. And, and at that point, you know, that's when I really, I think that's when I really started to really embrace them. Yes, folks, you're in tune to the Herman Singh Showtime. It's uh, 93.5 FM on your dial. It's now 20 minutes before 11 a.m. And that's where Herman Singh comes in. He's a realtor slash mortgage broker slash weekly radio host down in New York City in the Queens neighborhood where most Guyanese live. It was his bright idea to bus Guyanese up to Schenectady every Saturday to encourage them to buy houses up there. He pays for the buses himself and promotes the trip like crazy on his weekly real estate slash music program, Herman Singh Showtime. If you're planning to purchase a property in Schenectady, our next trip is actually going up to Schenectady on Saturday. And if remember, friends, if you were selling your property... At the beginning of the mayor's uh, initiative to bring Guyanese to Schenectady five months ago, the mayor went on Herman's radio show and gave out his personal cell phone number on the air. A political gesture, he explains this way. I have uh, free incoming calls. So if, if I was paying for the incoming calls, I wouldn't have done it. And uh, I'd do it again. He gives me a sheepish look and then blurts, 857-4000, area code 518. If you want to buy a home in Schenectady, give me a call. One Saturday in September, I schlep out to Queens at 6.30 in the morning to take the bus tour myself. And while two dozen of us wait for the bus to arrive, I meet Ali Latif. He's 60 years old, and he's been living in the Bronx with his wife for the last 14 years. His black hair is perfectly parted on one side, and he's wearing a clean Oxford shirt buttoned to the collar. He tells me that he works as a doorman in Manhattan, and since he had to miss a day of work to come on the trip, and because he missed the bus by five minutes the week before, the trip is actually costing him $260. To be sure he doesn't miss the bus again, he's been waiting here since 5.30 this morning. And when he starts talking about why he's thinking of moving to Schenectady, he repeats over and over, his voice raised, pointing his long, thin finger at my nose, that he's not on a joyride. He's a serious businessman looking for an opportunity. So I lose two days pay just to go check this place out. It means that I'm not joking. $260 are losing, right? 
Yeah. I I go in there on business. Right. I personally go in there on business. Sure. I am a re, I am a serious job. Right. That's what I'm saying. I don't make joke with business. No. It's a three-hour bus ride to Schenectady, and when we pull into town, it's not pretty. We pass abandoned gas stations and empty storefronts and ugly, run-down apartment buildings. And then, in the middle of nothing, is City Hall. And City Hall is spectacular, obviously just renovated with gleaming marble, the kind of old government building that's so beautiful that the thought crosses your mind, maybe I should work in government. And there, lined up in front as our bus pulls up, are a chorus of clean, perky white men in multicolored golf shirts. It's a long way, isn't it? We've got beautiful weather for you here today, if nothing else, huh? Good morning. You have a nice ride up? These are the important guys with the food, right? What up? We are led like little sleepy sheep into an intimidating-looking room with leather chairs lining the perimeter. Everybody looks a little scared. Ali, the serious businessman who is not on a joyride, picks a seat close to the front. Good morning. I want to welcome you. It's my job to talk a little bit about the general economy, the history of Schenectady. Schenectady was founded about 300 years ago as a Dutch trading settlement. This speech by the city's director of economic development pretty much sets the tone for what's to follow all day. Mind-numbingly boring facts which go on and on and on peppered with the kinds of utterly sincere-sounding appeals that you almost never hear from any government official anywhere. Because, quite frankly, you're a great opportunity for us. Uh, and please know that we want you and need you, and so we hope you find us as much of an opportunity as, as we find you. One by so one, Jay the men take the stage. The head of the Chamber of Commerce, a state legislator, the president of one of the local hospitals, and the guy who owns the Goodyear Family Tire so Center. So it truly is a very, very exciting time to be a small person in downtown Schenectady. The Guyanese seem to find all of this captivating. A few of them are taking notes, and everyone is alert and attentive. Ali explains to me later, they're immigrants. No official of the United States government has ever courted them like this. They didn't welcome me in that way when I, come to, when I reached America in 1988. They didn't tell me anything about I welcome you because you're a hard-working man, Guyanese people. But um, Schenectady, actually, Schenectady is, is crying for help. And the only people who can put Schenectady back, Schenectady back on its foot is Guyanese people. It's true. It's not false. They're hard-working. And they're going to make it if they go to put back the city on its foot. Which brings us to Mayor Al, who orchestrated this whole morning to get them to see it this way. He's the last speaker, and when he comes on, more than anyone else, he treats the Guyanese like they're special. He solicits them in a way that seems more genuine. I'm just gonna, just in a couple minutes, I just want to tell you, Schenectady is a beautiful city. You know, it, it, it's, and I'm gonna pass some cards out too, if you wanna just take one and pass it around. He hands around a stack of his own business cards, which people seem a little shocked to be getting. And then, to make them feel welcome, he says in various ways, I am like you. He talks about his own immigrant roots, about how his grandparents came over from Poland, 
and about how his wife's parents moved to Schenectady from Italy. There's a lot of similarities between Italians and Guyanese. They're very family-oriented. They uh, very uh, ambitious. It's not uncommon to, uh, you know, for the Italians to work the way the Guyanese work. I, I think you're a lot like Polish people, you know, my family, and that you're very reserved. Italians like to argue. I know, because my wife is Italian. The mayor's bus tour of town takes four hours. He shows us good neighborhoods and bad, the sewage treatment plant and the old GE plant. We even stop at his son's little league picnic in the park for half an hour because he promised his wife he'd drop by. Hey, Tom! Hey, Tom! And he's constantly dragging the citizens of Schenectady onto the bus for testimonials. Come on over here. Tom is a city councilman who happened to be working in his front yard. We also meet Eddie, another city employee, and Jewel, the secretary to the former mayor. And around two hours into the tour, we're driving down a long, narrow street when Mayor Al spots a Guyanese family outside a house. I can see the mayor just about restrain himself from pointing excitedly at them. Yeah, well, I'll just tell everybody what you think is connected. Um, very nice place to live. Okay. Um, the last stop on the tour is the one that closes the deal for a lot of people. The mayor takes us to his wife's parents' house. Next to a small white ranch home is a huge vegetable garden with the most beautiful vegetables I think I have ever seen in my life. It strikes a chord with everyone. The mayor's in-laws, an elderly Sicilian couple, make a point of greeting each person and shaking their hand. They offer us all some homemade wine, and we're all goners, including Rohini and Gandhi Gopi, two New York City public school teachers who were skeptical after the morning presentation. When I see this, it reminds me of my own vegetable garden. And to my mind, this is the best part of the trip. So now how are you feeling about Schenectady? More and more positive. We want to um, get, uh, we want to start making steps. If we can talk to somebody today about certain steps of um, making a move. We stand around in the driveway drinking sweet white wine out of plastic cups. When I check in on Ali, he's unbuttoned the top button of his shirt and feeling a little tipsy and making plans to buy a house plus an empty lot next door. It's a month after the bus trip, and I'm back up in Schenectady. There's an old bar called Sarks in Hamilton Hill, which is the neighborhood that the mayor wants all the Guyanese to move to. You could say it's the worst neighborhood in the city, or you could say it's where the best house bargains are, depending on your point of view. When you drive through it, it seems like a third of the houses are boarded up, a sketchy enough place that people in the bar are kind of surprised that I would be walking in there alone. I talked to a guy named Rod Smith. He's a carpenter, and he grew up here. And though he and his friends don't think much of the mayor, they like this one initiative. Nearly everyone I meet in Schenectady likes it. Quite frequently. Anything to upgrade this community would be 100%. Schenectady's in the dumper right now. I can't make it to my I can't make it from my car to my front door which is 15 feet away without somebody trying to sell me something. 
I have people running up and down in front of my windows all night long selling drugs and other things. I mean, I got a guy standing outside of my front door trying to sell drugs, and he thinks that I'm pulling over to buy something from him. And I said, I live here. Just get, it, get away from my front door. Next thing I know, I'm going to be, you know, they're going to be coming through it. I don't want that. All the Guyanese believe it's safer in Schenectady than in New York City. But they're moving to the worst neighborhood in town, and the crime stats aren't encouraging. In the year 2000, Schenectady County had half the violent crimes per capita than Queens County had. But there were so many property crimes that overall Schenectady had much higher crime rates per capita than Queens. Not that this makes much difference to the Guyanese I talked to. Whenever I ask them about the difficulties of moving, how dangerous the neighborhood is, the availability of jobs, the fact that Schenectady gets 60 inches of snow a year, so they're not going to actually get that much time in their gardens, they shrug it off. They say what I imagine immigrants to the city have always said. They say they're ready to sacrifice, which is one reason the mayor's pitch seems to work so well. He doesn't tell them it's going to be easy in Schenectady. He makes it clear it's going to be hard, and they're going to have to work hard. And they all tell me that's exactly what they're prepared to do. This house, look at it. The driveway is very wide, right? It's very spacious, wide. It's not choked up. When I catch up with Ali, he shows me a Polaroid of the yellow house he now owns in Schenectady. Two weeks after our bus trip, he took another day off from work, bought a $70 bus ticket, and went up to see some houses. He liked this one immediately. He didn't have the place inspected or do any more research about Schenectady or the neighborhood. And compared to prices in New York City, it was a steal. He paid $55,000, all cash. It's a two-family house, and there are two tenants in the building. The tenants are Section 8, which means that the government pays a large portion of the rent. He'll rent it out for two years, and then he'll move to Schenectady to retire. He's put his faith and his life savings into this plan. And it was all because of the mayor, he tells me, the way the mayor treated him. I think, one, why I'm going to live there, I can approach him. That's the most important factor. I can go and approach Mr. Bush and... And, and these, the, the Rudy Giuliani and the governor, I can't go meet them. It's hard to reach them. But I can reach, if I live in Schenectady, I could, I could go and reach the, the mayor. And they will, I'm sure they will listen to me. These are people that are from Guyana originally. Again, Mayor Al. But for the last 10 or 15 years have been in New York City. And... In New York City, uh, they revere the office of mayor. You know, the mayor of New York City is an international figure. Uh, so when they come here, oftentimes they'll say, I've never shaken the hand of a mayor before. And and I, I kind of go along with that. I, I let them think that, that I'm uh, bigger than life. He says this is completely different from the way his regular constituents greet him. It's a hard, blue-collar city, he says, 
The old residents don't put the mayor up on a pedestal. Only the new residents do that. Which is a mixed blessing for him, since he's not the sort of person who feels very comfortable on a pedestal. Wendy Doerr. As best as anybody knows, there were about a thousand Guyanese in Schenectady before the mayor started his initiative in May. And according to mortgage brokers, perhaps 200 families, maybe a thousand people, have moved since then. The mayor's goal is to triple the Guyanese community to 3,000 people by the end of the year. His long-term goal is a little more ambitious, 35,000 people by the end of three years, a huge increase for a city of 60,000. So far, it's a small enough change that everybody that Wendy talked to in Schenectady, even in the neighborhood that is most affected, told her they did not notice a change yet. Moses supposes his toeses are roses, but Moses supposes erroneously. Moses supposes his toeses are roses, but Moses supposes erroneously. For Moses, he noses his toeses aren't roses, as Moses supposes his toeses to be. Moses supposes his toeses are roses, but Moses supposes... Well, the program was produced today by Wendy Durr and myself with Alex Plumberg, Jonathan Goldstein, Starley Kine, and Mr. Chris Neary. Senior producer Julie Snyder, Elizabeth Meister runs our website. Production help from Todd Bachman and Jane Golombiski. Music help today from Agoraphone, our website, where you can listen to our programs for free or order tapes, www.thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our show comes from the listeners of WBEZ Chicago, WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia, who would like to thank all the listeners who recently pledged. I, I did make it a rule to see how much money they had in their wallet, and, and that was, and I was going to take all of it. I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of This American Life. PRI Public Radio International